0: We're back. Not long ago, I think it was two weeks ago on the show, we were talking about the movie Food, Inc., which I realize now has left the theaters locally, but it'll be back on DVD, and when it is, I think think it should be seen. Let's uh, take up where we left off and invite back our good pal, Dr. Whitney Lehman.
1: Thanks. It's great to be back.
0: Let's, uh, let's take where we left off about um, talking about beef and, and the farm and the fact that everyone goes down to their market and they see these wonderful uh, uh, graphic artistry of, of like Farmer John standing out in his field and the reality is agriculture in America is pretty much one giant mechanized uh, machine.
1: Nothing could be further the, from the truth as a rule in terms of most, of, most products available to American consumers in supermarkets.
0: There is one shot. It's a helicopter shot or a plane shot. It they must be an eye or something, and they're flying over corn. And it looks like, like the entire lunar surface. I mean, you're looking like this <laughs> in, incredible amount of, of greenery as far as you can see off to the horizon, and it's all corn.
1: Yes, corn. Uh, taxpayer subsidies pay for corn, and corn is a very pesticide and water-intensive crop to um, to grow, and we pay for that as taxpayers.
0: You know, having grown up in the Bay Area when there were still farms, living out in orchards, this, this, this sort of doubly shocks me, I think, because, you know, you'd grow corn in some areas, and you'd go out and harvest it, and there were, we'd have pigs, like, out in the back that some of the neighbors did. You'd have chickens, you had rabbits, all these animals. This is this is a total, total change with, in modern agriculture, but a lot of guys, one of the heroes of the movie, Joe Salatin in, in Virginia, is kind of doing it the old-fashioned way and makes a case for why we should maybe turn the clock back.
1: Yeah, I think if you're going to do it, he's, his philosophy and his practices are spot on.
0: And we also should put a plug in while we're talking about it for the, for the book, Omnivore's Dilemma. Michael Pollan really talks about Mr. Salatin at great length about his philosophy and how he keeps using the grass as a, a way of capturing solar energy and turning it into to food.
1: Yes, it's not the most efficient process, uh, but for meat, um, it takes quite a lot of grass to feed cattle, um, but absolutely...
0: You talked on last week's show about how a lot of these costs aren't necessarily factored in. Joe says that you know his food is the cheapest you can buy because that is, you're basically paying up front for these hidden costs, which do get buried when we buy food like in Safeway. And I think that, that that's a really important part, that it actually is a lot cheaper than you'd think.
1: I believe so. I think if you did it correctly and you did it locally like he does, he's not a large-scale producer and he doesn't certainly ship his meat all over the all over the world or even, uh, far away. I did notice that some people were driving many miles to come buy products from him, but I do believe it is, if you do it small and locally, it would be expensive certainly, and it would be more of a treat than it is now, but I, I don't know that it would necessarily be extremely expensive. But I, again, I haven't looked at the life cycle cost. If you consider, he doesn't use, you know, fertilizers, um, and I'm not sure what he was feeding his chickens, but y- you do have to look at well, the entire yeah. life cycle of, all, of the yeah. animal feed as well as the animals themselves and whatever waste products are generated, including CO2 and methane all those things do need to be factored in. But um, if there were many, many farms like his and it was considered um, more of a treat, I, I assume the harm would be minimized relative to how meat
0: is produced now. I believe Michael Pollan uh, really took interest in Salton. And when he asked or inquired with him about shipping some chicken out to California, he says, no, I don't do that.
1: That's right. I, he, had to I go, he had to go the to movie. the East
0: Coast to go to the farm to see what he was doing.
1: Yeah, I, I do remember in the movie somebody, I want to say they drove 200 miles, I believe, something like that to to buy his products.
0: Well, we should talk about the local food movement. Before, before we do that, I want to talk about the villain in the piece or one of the biggest villains, which would have to be Monsanto, which, you know, this concept... Again, I have this concept of being a kid out in the farm, and you'd save the seeds, and you go plant them again the next year. Well, Monsanto's planning to change all of that. You have to buy every year from then, and if you're reusing your seeds, they regard you as just suspicious, even if you didn't buy from Monsanto. And they actually show in the movie how they, they pursued vigorously pursued a lawsuit against a guy whose job was you'd bring him your seeds, he'd clean them so they had only what you wanted and give it back to you, and Monsanto thought that was very suspicious and set out to shut him down.
1: I think, as far as I can understand from the movie, that's their intent is to create a a monopoly on life. It seems like they've done a good job of it. They uh, have been basically patenting life, patenting genes for uh, soybeans and um, other seed products, and have a team of powerful lawyers and don't really want people saving seeds and growing wild varieties. They want clearly want their seeds to be the only seeds used to go to grow crops.
0: Which, for me, may be the single most terrifying thing in the entire film.
1: It, it is terrifying, and you have to wonder what lack of diversity will result in eventually, I think. Some people hinted at it in the movie, but we're down to a few different strains of uh, corn and soybeans. I think, globally even, you know, there's we're down to not having very many wild varieties left but the predominant crops that are planted are only several genetically engineered strains
0: yeah i'd say if we want to get a good historical example of what can happen go look at what they didn't what happened in ireland in the 1830s
1: absolutely yeah one
0: strain (laughs) of crop wiped out famines and it's it's inevitable disaster unless we get more diversity in our food
1: Absolutely. Well, the web of life. I don't know if you read that book, but yeah, classic. Yes. That's the idea behind nature. It's very redundant. And once you knock out redundancy, you get rid of the safety net and, uh, it's, that seems obvious to me if you're down to not very many wild strains that have evolved to grow in different areas under different conditions, and you're just planting genetically engineered um, crops. Something will come along to decimate them, and unless you've got something to replace them, maybe they do, I don't know, uh, well, we're going to be in trouble, because we are beyond our carrying capacity as a planet anyway. you know, It's only because of fossil fuels that we've been able to produce enough fertilizer to grow crops in non-arable places, I think we're well beyond our carrying capacity. And uh, once either we run out of fossil fuel or something happens to our seeds, we're going to return to pre-industrial revolution populations.
0: By the way, we need you to come back sometime next month to talk about this issue of populations raging out of control—the great, the great issue of our day that has been swept under the rug.
1: Besides fossil fuel combustion and ecological footprint of uh, products that are available to us in the United States, the second problem globally certainly is overpopulation, and uh, I believe it's gotten to the point that if if you're well beyond your carrying your natural carrying capacity, um, you do. I think, have to start taking a look at what is sustainable and what is the right to reproduce a fundamental right if it interferes with the fundamental rights of other people already living here and their futures.
0: That's bound to be a provocative discussion.
1: (laughs) It's always a conversation killer.
0: You know, this is one area where there's been sort of a, a fundamental agreement between conservatives and liberals to all of our peril the christian right certainly and i mean certainly is not in favor of any kind of population controls oh, uh, yes. and and people of, of the i would say profound left persuasion just think this is this this is not you just this is not on the table you just don't even talk about this that's
1: that's very true the scientific community uh, it's not a topic for discussion in the scientific community or out of it really um, and i agree people i know who would be considered even educated liberal people uh, seem to be having more kids, many more than when I was a child in the 70s. We did talk about overpopulation when I was growing up, and it's become a taboo topic.
0: Yeah, the Europeans are actually having. Uh, Europeans have actually succeeded, as have large numbers of third-world countries in getting their populations reined in. We are now apparently one of the data outliers.
1: I believe the so. U.S. Uh, The Scandinavian countries have had zero population growth for a long time. Uh, Japan, I think they've had a low population growth for a long time. And those countries, I believe, are trying to offer incentives to build up their population because you do have to think about um, the number of people who are aging and can the next generation support them. But that's going to be a moot point if the planet won't support the entire population. So I do think something is going to have to be done. And there might be a period of adjustment or discomfort as we age if we decide we have to reign in the population, there is going to be a period that's probably not going to be so comfortable. But for if we're going to think long term about sustainability, uh, it's certainly something you can't avoid.
0: Longer discussion on that on a future show. Well, we, there's a lot you can talk about uh, regarding the movie Food, Inc. Let's maybe close with this one. I'm looking at the website right now, which I do recommend to listeners. And it does talk about how... Um, <laughs> Our sedentary lifestyle and, you know, sugar-laden processed foods are making us all fat. And they talk about that quite a bit in the movie.
1: Yeah, that's most unfortunate and... I know you saw the movie Supersize Me so there is the aspect I didn't of,
0: actually you didn't no. uh,
1: there is the portion size yeah. um, which has been increasing and if you look at footage from the 70s you notice people are a lot thinner back then and uh, maybe it's because the food wasn't so good I remember a lot of not very delicious <laughs> local food a lot of well, processed well I think what food, it was was
0: <laughs> every gas station wasn't a mini mart in the 1970s and you didn't
1: have uh, the super big gulper in Texas the super <laughs> hoss which I think is basically a two liter <laughs> soda in a cup two liters of soda <laughs> enough to to feed your family, <laughs> you well, don't want to feed your family corn. The syrup, movie, sh- I don't the think. movie
0: shows the strange skewing skewing of our society, where it is literally cheaper to feed your kid burgers, to feed your whole family burgers in a fast food restaurant than to go into a market and try and buy, for example, a head of broccoli.
1: That's unfortunate. It's because costs are externalized. So uh, I think that's why it is cheaper. It shouldn't be cheaper. It certainly should be cheaper to it, 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 well, buy I t- local produce. We talked about <laughs> capitalism
0: earlier. This, this, is, this is not capitalism. This is a distortion of the economy by artificially subsidizing corn. Archer <laughs> and, Daniels Midland and such corporations by keeping corn prices down absolutely. artificially.
1: Yes. um, and but, Also, when you look at the health value of what you're feeding your family, uh, I personally can't imagine making the choice to feed my family uh, sodas full of corn syrup and uh, fast food burgers and french fries that just seem, I mean, I feel like you could almost get in trouble for child abuse. if That's all I fed my kids. I've joked about it many times. Do I get up in the morning and feed my dogs um, a bowl of orange soda and some donuts (laughs) and then give them some, you know, hamburgers and french fries for lunch? Most people would throw me in jail. I think the SPCA would be after me. So uh, feeding that to your kids uh, doesn't seem like the best idea. I think you should do whatever you need to do to maybe eat less and try to, buy some higher quality food i don't a lot of people are overweight yet malnourished i think that's a major problem in this country besides type 2 diabetes
0: well something else when you come back we'll put this in the back burner too let's talk about how we can get the price of corn where it ought to be because if you did that the market would take over and lots of good things would happen i agree all right well we'll do that we'll get to that one in september how's that
1: Great. I love
0: that. (laughs) Dr. Whitney Lehman, it's always a pleasure. Uh, Again, we want to reiterate, uh, two thumbs up for Food, Inc., and people ought to go check it out.
1: Two thumbs up. Thanks, Doug.
0: All right. Another uh, bit of alarming uh, news from the headlines. There's been a big bust over in New Jersey about something that's not really quite an urban legend. We've talked about this before, how the fact that uh, organs are being trafficked from various third world countries, and apparently uh, the scandal relates to that. According to federal authorities, Brooklyn businessman Levy Itzhak Rosenbaum was charged in the first documented case of organ trafficking in the U.S. Noted the New York Daily News, Rosenbaum's arrest, part of a massive corruption and global money laundering scheme, shed a new spotlight on a sleazy underground network of desperate patients, scheming middlemen, and wretchedly poor foreigners who literally will sell their kidneys, corneas, and parts of livers. As a sidelight to this scandal, it's been noted that many hospitals try to screen out suspicious donors, but but noted Lindsay Tanner in the Associated Press, certain other hospitals take a look-the-other-way attitude, especially when a single operation can bring in tens of thousands of dollars. When I tell you, that brings back bad memories of being a medical resident and having, you know, hoops to jump through to get a patient admitted because generally they didn't have any dough, which to a point seemed appropriate. You don't want to have unnecessary hospital admissions, and you want to be efficient in your use of resources. But meanwhile, the other community doctors who had uh, patients that were well-to-do with insurance would admit patients for cough control. And because the hospital did pretty well with them, the more the merrier. Well, they were encouraged to admit and then admit again. Of course, I love the Wall Street Journal, which <laughs> reports that, well, what's, what's so bad about uh, helping people out that uh, need organs and, you know, it'll help people in foreign countries? Why not? Rather more appropriately, Janine Interlandi in Newsweek.com wrote, They're desperately poor people in Latin America, India, and other third world countries. They'll do anything to be able to buy food and shelter. When organ brokers offer cold cash for slices of their livers, what choice do they have? Setting up a legal system that forces people to choose between two kidneys and food for their family would lead to exploitation of the world's poor on a grand and grotesque scale. we need to talk also about this interesting uh, C Street retreat in Washington, D.C. We talked a little bit about this before. But this group called The Family has been described as the most well-connected religious organization that no one talks about. Apparently this goes back to 1935 when an itinerant preacher of Norwegian extraction, Abraham Verid, came to believe that union organizing in Seattle was communist-inspired. Of course, there may be a sliver of truth in that. I I have met communist labor organizers. One of these days I should tell the story of laying around the beach in Cabo San Lucas with a self-identified Stalinist, but that'll have to wait. Abraham uh, Verid went to Washington, D.C., with his viewpoint that uh, free market capitalism was divinely inspired, whereas unions and regulations are a form of blasphemy. He began cultivating friendships with powerful people and setting up prayer groups. Strange theology based on the belief that because people are powerful, they have God's favor. Reed believed that only key men can change the world, and he set out to cultivate those key men. Groups currently led by Doug Coe, age 81 has been noted for some of his sermons, which uh, consider the powerful to be accountable only to God and their peers, not to their constituents or the U.S. Constitution. He's also spoken glowingly of the organizational talents of the mafia and Osama bin Laden. And the fact that the family believes that uh, the powerful are divinely inspired goes a long way toward toward explaining their, uh, their expressed admiration for such people as Adolf Hitler and Ho Chi Minh. Now, you'd think these guys would be a bunch of cranks, but uh, it turns out there's an awful lot of politicians affiliated with this uh, group. Their house on C Street's right around the corner from the Republican Party's national headquarters, although it should be clarified that not all members are Republican. In fact, Hillary Clinton has apparently gone to pray with Doug Coe and has spoken well of him. Two of their most prominent leaders are former Secretary of State James Baker and former Attorney General Ed Meese. Over the summer, no less than three politicians affiliated with the group were embroiled in sex scandals. South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford, Nevada Senator John Ensign, and former Mississippi Representative Chip Pickering. The fact that these three prominent Republicans associated with the House uh, getting embroiled in headline-grabbing scandals prompted a series of comic strips in Doonesbury, which I think I should quote from. Panel 1 at 133 C Street, the elite conclave listens rapidly. Second panel, Senator X lays out his problem. What to do about my soulmate's husband? Panel three, the family deliberates, evoking their heroes. Man stands up going, what would Jesus do? Last panel, their heroes, unfortunately, also include Hitler and Mao. guy in the back of the room is going, well, maybe we should whack him. (laughs) Apparently, Jeffrey Charlotte wrote about his experience going underground living in the C Street House. And we refer you to the website to try and find uh, what he wrote. One article is titled, Jesus Plus Nothing, Undercover Among America's Secret Theocrats. It's worth your time to look up and read. This might be a good time to take a break. Since we always like to go out with some snappy bumper music, uh, let's, let's pick a choice that was mentioned in Mental Floss uh, a couple, couple months back. The article was titled, TV Theme Songs That Will Never Die revealed a first-class bit of trivia, which is that when Gene Roddenberry contracted to have a Star Trek theme song created, Roddenberry was guaranteed to get co-credits for writing the lyrics, which the magazine rather gleefully reprinted as, "'Beyond the rim of the starlight, my love is wandering in star flight.'" Adding that even though these lyrics were thankfully never used, (laughs) Roddenberry still got half the royalties. But let's instead go out with uh, a fine piece of TV theme music. That would be the theme song to The Simpsons. Apparently, when creator Matt Groening approached composer Danny Elfman to write the opus, he handed the composer some highlights, uh, including the Jetsons theme and selections from Juliet of the Spirits. But oddly enough, some easy-to-listen music and apparently a Teach Your Parrot to Talk record. Reportedly, after listening to it for a while, Elfman told Groening, I know exactly what you're looking for. And apparently he did. So let's go out with that Emmy winning theme song. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got more in segment three. Don't go away.